0: Well, we are this morning finishing up John chapter 11, and this is kind of a, a, a really clear breakpoint in the Gospel of John, where we um, end what is largely the public ministry of Jesus Christ, and then the closing chapters focus on his ministry to his disciples, largely, Uh, equipping them and preparing them. And then, of course, the final days of his life, his death and resurrection. So we will break after this morning from John's Gospel. We'll resume again with chapter 12 in September. In the meantime, this summer, we're going to go through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, we have, uh, perhaps you've seen some of the material we've put out about that, standing firm and pressing on in union with Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians has, at points, almost a... um, a parental tone to it where it is and in fact Paul uses some of that imagery in First Thessalonians to speak of his love for the Thessalonian people his desire that they stand firm in truth but that they not grow content but press on as well um, so almost that parental sort of desire to see our kids standing firm but then pressing on as well and growing in their walk with Christ um, so I want to encourage you over the course of this week as you have time devotionally just to read through First Thessalonians great if you could read it through in one sitting. It's five chapters, not a long letter at all. Um, and if you read it through once or twice, it'll give you a good sense for the theme of where we're going and what we're going to be looking at as we undertake it. And then one last announcement related to that. Crossway has done a neat job of taking um, books of the Bible, putting the text of the ESV, and, and then giving you some room to take notes. So you have on the one page the the First Thessalonians, the, the text of that, and then you have a blank page that Devotionally, kind of as your own little running commentary, you can put down thoughts, either use it uh, as you're taking notes, even during sermon or just during your own study time. Um, We have those available. There's a number at the Welcome Center. Uh, We're asking for a donation of $3.50. We picked them up this week, $3.50. can't beat it. Um, it, It'll cost you more in shipping if you try to order them yourself. Um, So that's why we got a whole bunch of them, so that if people want to make use of them, uh, somebody will have them there at the Welcome Center immediately following the service. So we pick up this morning in John chapter 11. 20-plus years ago, one of the best-selling Christian books of all time was published, and it included this intriguing statement about the topic of evangelism, about how believers in Jesus Christ go about proclaiming the gospel. The author wrote this. He said, It is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart, which is a bold claim um, not, not necessarily unusual, echoed by other writers on the topic of evangelism, the idea that we need to figure out what makes people tick, need to sort of decipher what their felt needs are and respond to that. And if we can figure that out, then, then it's a lot easier to present the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most compelling way for that person, which sounds fairly simple. Just figure the person out and understand how to, to minister to them. Well, John's gospel tells us a lot about the gospel. Its purpose is evangelistic. John makes that clear in John chapter 20, that he is describing scenes from the life of Christ. Uh, He is describing this series of miracles that Jesus Christ performs, signs as John describes them, that Jesus did throughout his earthly ministry, all to engender belief. All of it designed to bring people to the point of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they might have life in his name. And so throughout John's gospel, we've seen Jesus performing these signs, carrying out these miracles, and and the effect repeatedly is like a ship sort of plowing through calm seas when you see the wake that it leaves behind. There are those who respond in faith to Jesus Christ, and there are many who respond in opposition to him, who do not embrace him and continue to oppose Jesus Christ. And and this final portion of John chapter 11 makes it abundantly clear that evangelism is not merely understanding a person's felt needs. In fact, this passage is really an eye-opening look into the mind of the unbeliever who is rejecting Jesus Christ. It's at least giving us an interesting example of what goes on, some of the thinking that goes on in that rejection of Jesus Christ. One writer describes this portion of Scripture, it's as if the Apostle John is a fly on the wall letting us hear how some unbelievers deal with the claims of Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see what some of the the, the greatest religious leaders in Israel at that time, time, the people who were charged, the men who were charged to to administer the Word of God, the Old Testament, what they did with the miracles that Jesus performed, and then why they respond that way. We'll actually get into understanding a little bit of their thought process. And I think along the way, what we ultimately will be reminded of is our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ to be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also to trust God for the results, to trust that God is the one who ultimately saves people. So this all follows the raising of Lazarus, the account we read last week. Jesus uh, comes to the town of Bethany, and he ministers to Lazarus' sisters, Martha and then Mary, and then he stands before the tomb, and he calls Lazarus out from the dead and raises him to life. And so here's what happens next, verse 45, we pick up in just a couple of verses to get us started and set the scene. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, having seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. There are many people who come to faith in him, who come to believe that this is indeed the Son of God. He now has demonstrated, demonstrated power over creation, if you will, in, in calming the seas, walking on the water. He's healed people, even people who were deathly sick, but this time he has actually raised a person who has been entombed for four days. Some, it says, go to Jerusalem, about two miles away, and they go to report to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, what they have seen. Probably mixed motives in here, some for good, some who are um, perhaps saying, okay, these are the religious leaders. We want to get some kind of interpretation on this, on what we have just seen, the likes of which we've never seen before. So they go to the Pharisees, perhaps open-handed, saying, tell us, how how do you respond to this? What do we do with this? Others, no doubt, understand that there is intense opposition already from the religious leaders toward Jesus, and so there's almost a hint here that there's maybe a little bit of tattletaling, if you will, just to sort of stir things up a little bit. You ought to see what Jesus did now, especially to those who have rejected him and determined to kill him. What do you do with this? What do you make now of Jesus? So verse 47, so the chief priests And the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Pause there. So this is the greatest miracle that Jesus has done up until this point. This is the one that is... Impossible for man to explain under any terms other than this is a work of God. And so at this point, they convene a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was the the highest um, judicial body, if you will, amongst the Jewish people. The Roman government was very much in control. There was nothing that the Jews were going to do that ultimately wasn't subject to the rule and scrutiny of Rome. But Rome did allow the Jews to have this council of priests and scribes and Sadducees and give them some measure of legislative, judicial, executive authority over the Jewish people in Israel, some some realm in which they could operate ultimately under the watchful eye of Rome. So when we see in, in the end with Jesus Christ, when it comes to executing someone, they still have to go and plead the case to Rome because that power lies with the Roman government. There's limits to what the Sanhedrin can do, but it it essentially functions as a, a Jewish high court. It is presided over by the high priest who has many chief priests, many of whom are related to him, um, and then a great number of Pharisees and a lesser, a great number of Sadducees, I should say, and a lesser number of Pharisees. So the Sanhedrin is convened. At this point, it is, it is their determination to settle the question of what to do with Jesus. It has now reached this point where it can't just be sort of give and take between Pharisees and Jesus. There must be something formal done because now the news is spreading that Jesus Christ has raised the dead, and who knows how much more he will do of this and how much more this news will spread, and so they convene. And you get their frustration right away in verse 47. Both of the comments of the the council here are actually present tense, and so we'd better take um, verse 47 as, so what are we doing? What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. There is exasperation in that, what are we doing? It's, It's essentially a rhetorical question. We have tried to confront Jesus, we have tried to slander Jesus, we have tried to undermine Jesus, we have tried to show people that he is wrong, that he is blaspheming, that he is healing on the Sabbath. We have been there at every turn to try to criticize Jesus in the eyes of these people and, and where is it getting us? What are we doing? We are failing to discredit Jesus and in fact his fame is only spreading. And so they are struggling here with this. What are we doing? And so their dilemma then in verse 48 is, if we let him go on doing this, everyone will believe in him. They're they're realizing what's happening. That as Jesus continues to perform these signs, people are coming to faith in him. And the consequence that they see of this is the Romans will come and put an end to this. That that what will happen is more people will embrace him, they will perceive him as their leader, they will look to him to rule the country, inevitably word will get to Rome, Rome will see him as leading an insurrection against Rome, and Rome will come in with its military and it will crush us. And so it says there in verse 48 that um, they will come in and take away both our place and our nation. That reference to our place could have a couple of meanings. One could be a reference to the temple. In the book of Acts, there's a couple of places where the temple is referred to as this holy place, and so they could be talking about the Romans coming in and devastating the Jewish temple, or it could be much, perhaps more crasser than that, which is they're going to take our place, what we have, all that, that belongs to us as members of the Sanhedrin. Either way, it is all about them. Their standing, their power, their place will be lost if the Romans decide that this Jesus from Nazareth is now a troublemaker and a threat to the empire, particularly in Israel. The, the members of the Sanhedrin are now entering panic mode because if this continues to go on, people will believe in him and we will lose what we have. What's happening here is really valuable for us in terms of when we get to those the, the final twenty four hours of the life of Christ. Because what we're really seeing here ultimately is the, the trial of Jesus Christ. He is being tried in absentia. This is the, the hearing that is being done by the highest body in Judaism to debate, Jesus, what to do with him, and to come to a place and a verdict and a sentence. So this is really the trial of Jesus Christ. It's long noted that when you come to the accounts in the Gospels of his arrest And and sort of trial and conviction, that it is all just vastly hurried, that he is arrested at night in stealth, that he is sort of rushed before the priest, the chief priest, and and it's just he's brought to to Rome and said, crucify him. We're we're done with him. And, And that violates what we even know historically from Jewish practice and tradition of that time, which was you could not proceed from trial to sentencing without at least a full day, a full 24 hours passing for time for deliberation and meditation on it. And so people have often looked at that and said, How, how is it that, that they could do this? It, it, it is it just strictly their hatred for Jesus? That's part of it, but in, in the minds of the Sanhedrin, this is the trial. They've already followed the process through. They just did it without Jesus being present. They came, they met, they discussed, and they determined that Jesus must be done away with and that all that's left to do at this point is just arrest him and take him in and fulfill the execution. They are already demanding the death penalty. So when you come to a passage like Mark chapter 14, verse 1, it, it's speaking of just before the Passover, says the chief priests and the scribes, we're seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. It's because this Sanhedrin had already done the trial and the verdict and the sentencing, and all that was left was to complete the task. Try to arrest him at a time when it will cause the least commotion because of all the people who believe in him and quickly move him along to execution. So they're gathered to figure out how to do that. What do you do with Jesus? All of our prior efforts... To address him in some way have failed, and he is now continuing to perform signs, and as we see it, if he continues, he will bring about the wrath of Rome, which will mean the destruction of Israel. So verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. So here is Caiaphas, who holds great power. He is the sort of presiding judge, if you will, over the Sanhedrin. He has been the high priest for more than a decade. And so when John makes the comment that he was high priest that year, John is not showing, as some critics will say, well, he's showing ignorance of the fact that Caiaphas was already high priest. What he's simply pointing out is that Caiaphas was the high priest during this particularly fateful year, the year when the the, the Jewish people would actually reject their Messiah. Uh, This year of all years is when Caiaphas is high priest. And so he's talking about the, the fact that this is a pivotal year. The high priest and his family had enormous power in Israel. They lived well. They enjoyed what luxury there was. And he was clearly, as you see by his attitude, not about to sacrifice what he had for this untrained, itinerant preacher, sort of rabbi from Galilee who is stirring up trouble. Caiaphas is saying, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, we're not... We're not going down this path with this guy. And so that's why verse 49, when it says his first comment as the Sanhedrin has sort of been in panic mode about what do we do, Caiaphas steps up and goes, don't you know anything? Essentially, Caiaphas is saying, are you fools? This isn't subject for debate. This isn't an issue that we're going to sit here and, 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 and sort of say, well, maybe, you know, maybe if Jesus goes on, we'll be okay. He's, he, he essentially says either one man dies or the nation dies. So, so what is there to debate? If you've got one guy versus a whole nation, you sacrifice the one guy, and you end this and you preserve the nation. This is, this is political expedience at, at its finest at this point. Caiaphas just looking and going, this is practical, guys. Aren't you thinking? Are you fools? John is going to point out to us in a moment the spiritual implications of Caiaphas's statement, but from a purely political standpoint, Caiaphas is just sort of rudely rebuking his colleagues and saying, guys, there's not an option B here. We're not going to weigh pros and cons about whether Jesus should live and, and keep going, and we should somehow try to manage him or whether he should be put to death. The fact of the matter is This is between one man and the whole nation, and it's absurd to think otherwise. We need to get rid of the one man. And that was all it took. If you drop down to verse 53, it says So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It was determined. Caiaphas makes the argument that ultimately settles it for the Sanhedrin. He is guilty, he is convicted. He is sentenced to death. And in fact, all that remains is to find the right time to arrest him and then make the case to the Romans that they need it to execute him. And we already see the Jews laying the foundation for that case, which is: hey, we love you Romans, and we want to honor you and obey you. This guy's a troublemaker, he's gonna cause insurrection. We're turning him over to you to execute because he is nothing but a political troublemaker. They're already laying the groundwork for that argument. So Here here are Israel's greatest, at that point in history, by by virtually any definition, greatest religious minds, scholars in the Old Testament, the the men that people would look to, to give them understanding of the law of Moses and how to practice good Judaism. These are the, the leaders. They have seen the evidence of what Jesus has done. They've either seen the miracles themselves or they've seen the results of those miracles with people who were previously lame or blind who now stand before them and can walk and can see. So so they've had firsthand visual evidence of Jesus doing things that only God could do. They've heard the claims of Jesus firsthand because they've stood out in Jerusalem and tried to debate him and he has said, yes, I am the one sent from the Father. He has made no bones about the fact. That I am who you who you are accusing me of being in a blasphemous way. I am the Son of God. He has been abundantly clear with them, and without equivocation, He has clearly demonstrated to be the Messiah. They've seen the signs. Now He has done the greatest miracle that any of them have ever witnessed. And even if they haven't seen Lazarus alive, they see the writing on the wall. If all these people have seen him alive, everybody else is going to see him alive. And that's why when we get to chapter 12, they also determine that we've got to kill Lazarus too because Lazarus is sort of walking, talking evidence of the power of Jesus. And so it's all there. This is, this is evangelism 101 on one level where it's just, here is Jesus. Here's what Jesus has done. Here is who Jesus says he is. Believe in him. How can you see all this and not believe in him? So what did the religious leaders do? They rejected the indisputable evidence of God in Jesus Christ. They just rejected it. The the, the thing to keep in mind here is they're, they're not disputing it because verse 47 says, again, what are we doing? For the man is performing many signs. They're not disputing the signs. They're not trying to make excuses for the signs. There is this mountain of evidence that has built up right before their eyes, and at no point do they try to argue and say, well, this is trickery, this is magic, this is something else, this isn't God. They've come to the place now where it's, yeah, okay, okay. He's doing signs and people are believing in him and understandably they will continue to do so. And so it's not a question of whether or not they need more evidence to compel them because, and again, verse 48 says, if we we let him keep doing this, everyone will believe in him. The, The language of verses 47 and 48 is entirely consistent with John 20 and his purpose statement, which is, he's doing those signs so people will believe in who he is. And here now are his Absolute opponents, the the chief priests and the Pharisees and others, saying he's doing these signs and people are believing in him, and and therefore the conclusion they come to seems absurd. Therefore we must kill him because we, we have to stop him, because we reject him. I think this is helpful to us in terms of thinking through this subject of evangelism that there's more to this in some sense than, than sort of this notion of if I just figure out the key to an unbeliever's heart or if, if I just overwhelm this unbeliever with evidence of Jesus Christ if I just sort of pile stuff on, well, they've got to come to faith in Christ because it just, it's so obvious. It's so, we, we were singing about it. Right? How simply we sing, he walks on the water, he speaks to the sea because, because God has graciously enabled us to see and believe those things, we think, well, that, that should just overwhelm people. And yet, it's important for us to understand unbelievers, to, to know unbelievers, to build relationships with unbelievers, to be engaged in their lives and, and and look for ways to talk of Christ and the gospel. Jesus demonstrates that even with the, the woman at the well. He's got obviously omniscient knowledge and doesn't need to explore and ask questions, but by the same time, he's he's talking with her. He's engaging with her before he's beginning to confront her. And so there's, there's value in that. There, there's critical importance in us understanding the gospel and being able to recite the gospel and us understanding the evidence for, for Jesus Christ and the truthfulness of scripture. But we should never fall into the trap of believing that just because we've sort of figured out a person's felt needs or because we've, we've done such an airtight case about Jesus and, and why this all must be true, that therefore they must get saved. I mean, what else is left? We, we've done it so well at this point. And yet you look at this, And it is evidence to the fact that they had seen and heard it as plain as day. And they said, no, no, we reject him. This is just reminiscent of what God says to us in Romans chapter 1, when it makes it clear that the the existence of a creator God is evident to all people who just simply look and see creation. Romans 1 argues that they, they, they can't deny it unless they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because there is the existence of God in the order of nature, and the, what we see that just fascinates us about nature speaks to the fact that there is a creator God. Trouble's not proof. The trouble is in a human heart that is inherently sinful, and in a human heart that, when left to its own devices, wants to be its own God. I want charge of my own life, and this, this Jesus Christ deal starts to challenge that, starts to bring that into question. And that's why then they can look straight at the powerful truth of the gospel and do what Romans 1 says, which is suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It says in Romans 121, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's not a question of knowledge. It's not a question of trying to, to build up more facts. It's, they know God and they reject God. One of the other pictures of this, I think, that's so vivid is in Revelation 9, and it is speaking about God using catastrophes to pour out judgment on the earth. And it is just these dramatic things that are happening in the world that we would say are happening perhaps in nature, and yet it is evident that it is is God who is doing this, and he is powerfully demonstrating his existence and urging people to submit and yet it says in Revelation 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Even there, John who gives us Revelation 9 it is pointing out to us that in the face of the greatest evidence of God's power and ability to judge creation, greatest evidence since the times of Noah, there will still be people, having seen all of that, who will stand there and shake their fist at heaven and say, no, I will not bow to Jesus Christ. I will not believe in him. And That is the case in John chapter 11. Religious men, highly trained in the Old Testament confronted with the most compelling evidence you could ever imagine for the Messiah, now raising the dead, and ultimately their verdict is away with him. You don't need more evidence. Just get rid of them. Destroy them. As you and I have opportunities to present the gospel to loved ones, to neighbors, to coworkers, to people that God puts in our lives, this is not by any means encouraging that we should somehow feel like it's, it's a lost cause and be discouraged by it. Because frankly, what we've already seen is many came to faith in him on account of what they have seen. So there is reason to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should do so. We should be passionate about our Savior. We should be clear about his gospel. But we should also be so prayerful about it. Because ultimately, what what we see here again portrayed for us is we are talking to people who are in rebellion to God and whose minds are darkened by sin. And all we can do is faithfully hold out the gospel and trust that God is the one who opens their eyes to see this, not just as the facts that it is, the reality that it is, but as the Savior that they desperately need. We need to be prayerful before we seek to evangelize and while we're evangelizing and after, knowing that it is God who must work in their hearts. We are not proclaiming the gospel to people who are just sort of morally neutral and need to be unlocked in some way or overwhelmed with evidence. We are dealing with people who have a bent away from the gospel, who reject Jesus Christ by nature and whom God must change their heart. And so we need to be faithful to proclaim Man's fall into sin, God's redemption through Jesus Christ, the call to faith and repentance that that we are called to, and then with prayer, trusting that God will soften their hearts and open their eyes to see his truth. In the lost and unbelieving state of man, the primary person, the primary commitment to a person is to self. It's, It's ultimately to me. We've all been there. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ today, you can still think back to that point where the overriding commitment is to me. I don't want God because I think he will do something or expect something or urge something in my life that I may not want, and I don't want to have to listen to him. I want to do it myself. I want to be in charge of my own life. That's exactly what's happening here. We see what the religious leaders did, but then we see why as well. They reckoned themselves and their own desires as more valuable than Jesus. If you look at verse 50, Caiaphas' answer to the, his charge, really, to the rest of the Sanhedrin, when he starts with, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Nor do you understand. The Greek word there is legizomai. It sounds like logical to us. The, the, the idea of the word is reckoning. He's not saying, you don't understand in the sense that you don't get this, you don't comprehend this, I'm talking over your heads. What he's saying is, aren't you not reckoning this? Aren't you not thinking this through and beginning to weigh it out as to what's logical in this case? That's what he's pushing on them at this point. This is a a question of reckoning. You're not adding this upright. You're not thinking about what's at stake in all of this. You're you're, you're panicking because you see what's happening and you're not thinking it through that it's either him or you. That's ultimately where Caiaphas is going to descend to. Guys, this comes down to it's either Jesus or it's you. You're, You're trying to think this out. It's no deeper than that. Have you guys really weighed what you're talking about? Is this guy's life worth you losing everything? That's how crass Caiaphas' appeal is at this. You're not, you're not thinking this through rightly. This is everything. Your world. Sanhedrin members were amongst the most influential, influential people in the Jewish world. They, they tended to have the, the comfortable lives. They did well, and Caiaphas is just boiling it down to the bottom line. Listen, guys, it's us or him. If we let him go, we stand to lose everything. If we stop him, life is good. We, we save our lives, and, and all is well. It should not surprise us that unbelievers, when confronted with the, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternity and the truth of God's love shown through Jesus Christ, that they would still say, you know what, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds really interesting, but I don't want it. I'm glad it works for you but it's not for me. Because if you're suggesting that Jesus somehow becomes sort of master of my life, that that Jesus is is Lord, I'm good without that. I I don't want a Lord or a master. I I think I'm okay where I am. I'm looking for either, either the world version of loving Jesus, who lets me do anything I want to do and says, I love you, it's okay. Do whatever feels good to you. Or I don't want Jesus at all. It shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what it is here. Jesus has expectations on them. Jesus is calling them to believe in him and to regard him as the son of God. And when it comes to that place of, well, wait a minute, if we do that, then, then who knows what we lose of all the good things we've got, and we just don't think it's worth it. We dare not downplay that at the heart of the gospel is a call to deny self. But the gospel at some level has to say to people, you must acknowledge that this path that you have been on, this self-directed plan, has not worked. That it is taking you toward destruction. That even though, yeah, you, you may have prospered in some ways, that ultimately it is leading you away from the goodness of God and his grace in your life, and it is leading you toward destruction. And you need to turn from that, repent, and follow Jesus Christ and, 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 and seek to serve and honor him. Jesus said it in Matthew 10, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These religious leaders were typical of unbelievers of all time when it comes to rejecting the gospel. They they put on one side of the scales the Lord Jesus Christ, and they put on the other side of the scales their life and their good fortune, and they said, "Hmm, I like this. I'm happy where I am. I don't need Jesus or want Jesus, and I don't want to have to submit to Jesus. So I'm going to keep what I've got. Whatever power, pleasure, perceived peace I have, that's enough. I'm not going to sacrifice it to follow him. And that's what they did. The beauty of this passage is John's commentary, though. Verse 51, after Caiaphas gets done saying, listen, this is a matter of one man for the people, not the whole nation perishing— Verse 51, John writes, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The beauty of this is John pointing out that both he as the author of the gospel of John and Caiaphas as this unbelieving high priest both understand Jesus' death to be substitutionary. They're completely on different planes when it comes to what that substitution means, but both see it as a sacrifice that has to be made. From Caiaphas's point of view, it is a political sacrifice, and from John's point of view, it is the ultimate sacrifice for the souls of man. Leon Morris puts it this way, either the nation dies or Jesus dies, but if he dies, the nation lives. It is his life instead of theirs. This, this is the pivotal moment where Caiaphas makes the statement that sort of seals the deal for Jesus Christ. We, Why are we wrestling with this? Sacrifice him and save the nation. Right, guys? Oh, yeah. All right. And that's the end of it. The, 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 the remarkable historical irony of all this is in a very short time, Jesus Christ would give his life and be put to death on a cross and then risen again. About 40 years from this time in AD 70, the Romans would come in and crush Jerusalem and and, and take out the Jewish leadership at that point because of charges of rebellion against them. So not only would they have rejected in, in that short time period their Messiah and sent him to the cross, but they would then lose their nation anyway because of their sin and rebellion against God. They would still lose their nation to Rome. Jesus Christ did die a substitutionary death, but as John says in verse 52, it's not just a question of his substitution for the nation, the Jewish people, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It was far more than Jewish people who would come to him in faith. He died to gather to himself one people, one children of God who are scattered. This statement should remind you again of what we've seen in the Gospel of John, sort of this building theology concerning the sovereignty of God in saving a people for himself. He has said things along this line before, and he is describing again God's sovereign work of bringing people to himself. The word of God is clear that in God's eternal decree, he has set apart a people, Jews and Gentiles, whom he is giving to his Son, to be a people of his own. And the description here is a people who aren't even yet regenerated. They are not born again. They have not come to faith. In fact, he's talking about calling them children of God, and they are still scattered abroad. They, they still need to be brought in, but they are already, in God's economy, already understood to be those who are children of God because he has already set them aside as his. Jesus says this in John ten sixteen. "'I have other sheep, and I must bring them also.'" And they will listen to my voice. And this is the beauty of if you are trusting in Jesus Christ of what we've experienced. That, that God would regard you as his sheep chosen by him to give to Jesus Christ. And that even when Jesus Christ has yet to go out and get those sheep, that it is already assured that he will go out and he will call to that sheep. And that sheep will hear his voice and respond to him and be his. That is God's grace at work in our lives. God the Father ultimately giving a people to his son, and his son securing their salvation on the cross. Last part of this then says, verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The final events in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ are now set into motion. This is where we end in John chapter 11. The trial is now complete. The case is now sealed insofar as the the Jewish authorities are concerned. They have convicted Jesus They have sentenced Jesus. They are simply bent on killing him, and it is just a matter of time now between where and when they can accomplish this, where they can get him and ultimately sacrifice him on the cross. They think for the nation, he knows it is for his people. For we who have been saved through the work of Jesus Christ, we have the joy and the privilege of proclaiming this gospel. Despite the the hostility and the rebellion and the rejection of these Jewish leaders. There are all throughout, we've seen in John chapter 1 through 11, people who at various moments, at glimpses of Jesus, turn to him in faith and belief. They respond. And you and I have that privilege of sitting on the front row of the, as an audience of the work of God when we are able to share that gospel with someone and see God by his grace use that as just another piece in their life toward bringing them to himself, sometimes even being able to be the witness to see that person surrender their life to Jesus Christ. We should do that and we should pursue that and we should tell people plainly this truth about the Son of God and encourage them and exhort them to believe in him and prayerfully trust as we do that praying before and during and after that God will change their hearts, that he will take them from a people who are reckoning that somehow their own life is better than Jesus' life, and they're not sure about that, that he would change their hearts so that their reckoning would be made clear and they would see that I can only have life through Jesus Christ. There is only hope through Jesus Christ that he would open their eyes to the truth of a Savior who did give his life as a ransom. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you thanking you for this great eternal plan of redemption. We see scenes like this, and, and, and they are difficult to stomach in some sense, that, that, that men who had spent such time studying the Old Testament could carry out such evil, could be in the presence of the Son of God and see him working in power, and ultimately choose to consign him to death. And yet, Lord, it is just a sweet reminder to us that this is the unfolding of your sovereign plan, that he would come to his own and his own would not receive him. It was all foretold, and it would open the way for Jesus Christ to lay down his life on the cross and to surrender it as a lamb going to sacrifice for us and for our sin. Father, were it not for your grace, we would stand there as those Pharisees and Sadducees and look at our wealth and our position and all that we have. And were it not for your grace, we would choose ourselves every time over Jesus. By your grace, you have brought many who are here this morning to believe that sacrificing all for Jesus is much better, trusting all into your hands, following Jesus, knowing that ultimately losing our lives for his cause and following him is far more worth it than anything this earth could offer us. Lord, help us to be a people who would be glad proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to do so boldly, unashamedly, to call people to believe in our Savior, to see Him for who He is and what He has done, and to repent and have faith in Him. Father, if there's anyone listening this morning who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, we would plead with you to open their eyes and soften their hearts and cause them to embrace Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Help us this week in the opportunities that you give us to be faithful with your gospel. Help us to To know again that we are surrounded by a world that is reckoning itself as being more valuable and more worthwhile than our Savior. But that we still have that great good news to proclaim to them and to hold out hope to them. Help us do that by the working of your spirit in us this week. Help us to revel in this gospel and the finished work of our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.